So Nikki and I had to skip a release this week, but we didn't want to leave you hanging. So we are thrilled to bring you this bonus episode from the fantastic podcast, Coffee and Cases. While Nikki and I typically explore occupations, hosts Allison and Maggie discuss crimes and the theories of those who committed them. In this bonus episode, they are discussing the abusive stalking of Cindy James. And while there's no physical evidence, it's a question of whether the stalker was determined to torture Cindy or if she did these actions to herself. So if you enjoy their show, please follow the show and consider leaving a five-star review. We hope you enjoy, and Nikki and I will be right back here next Tuesday with an episode from us. Hello, Body to Burial fans. Allison and Maggie here from Coffee and Cases True Crime Podcast. We love Mariah and Nikki and their pod so much that we wanted to do a little episode swap so we could share our love for their show with our listeners, who we know will be fascinated by the topics they cover. And Mariah and Nikki were on board to do the same, feeling you would love to hear about some of the cases we cover on our show. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast and help us with our mission of getting older, disregarded, or lesser-known cases back in the public eye. So without further ado, here is our episode. There was a movie that came out in 2020 called The Invisible Man that, if we're honest, freaked me out. And likely for the same reason that some other horror movies freak me out, in it, A woman is attempting to run away from an abusive partner. He has a way to make himself invisible, though, and to stalk her. Even when she thinks she's alone, he's always there. She can feel his presence, even though she can't physically see him. Oh, but he lets her know he's watching. Pulling off covers, handprints on steamy glass, even at one point, strangling her. There's the cliche saying that seeing is believing, and it might be true. For many of us, we need to see something with our own eyes before we will believe it. As a result, perhaps even more scary than the danger itself is the fact that the woman in the film attempts to explain her fears to family and friends, but because they don't see the danger, they believe it's all in her mind. More dangerous than a threat we can't see is that in our attempt to escape that threat, no one believes us that the danger is real. 31 years before this movie, though, there was a case investigated by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that sounds eerily similar to the movie plot I just described. A case in which a woman swore she was being stalked a case involving indications that the woman was being watched from within her own home, a case in which a woman went through psychological torture for seven years, but also a case for which no one believed the woman because no one ever saw a perpetrator. This is the story of Cindy James.
Welcome to Coffee in Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the case will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, and to follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast. Because as these families know, conversation helps to keep their missing family member in the public consciousness, helping to keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Cindy was... By all accounts, Maggie, someone who took care of others. She had two jobs. One was as a nurse, and the other was as a counselor for children dealing with emotional struggles. Which I feel like are both very mentally demanding jobs. Yes, yes. Cindy didn't have any kids of her own, but it was in that counseling position in every article I read that she felt the most fulfillment. And I didn't find in any of my research the reason for Cindy not having any children, but I did read that when she was only 19, she married a man nearly double her age. He was 18 years older. Holy crap. Now, not to say that there can't be healthy Yeah, it's just different relationships, right? Just different. But 19 is very young. And the man she married, Maggie, was a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Roy Makepeace. The two were actually married for 16 years. So for quite a while. Until in 1982, the two decided to divorce. Though I read that even though Cindy moved out and the marriage ended, the two were still on good terms. And one source even said that the pair continued to date. But then I'm thinking, why'd you get divorced if you're going to continue to date? What is the, the like preacher's name and the scarlet letter? Dimsdale. Is it Dimsdale? Like, and you know how like his name has like an underlying meaning or whatever. Like he's named, mm-hmm. he's named that for a reason. Like that's what I thought of when you said that that guy's name was Make Peace. I was like, huh, I wonder if that is a representation of something. Like, is this oh, a, right. is this alluding yeah. to something else? <laughs> and I, I mean, again, like even though they got divorced, they were on good terms. So they were able to make peace if you will. It is weird that they were dating though. Like why divorce yeah. each other if you're going to date, but okay. I thought so too. But Maggie, only four months after moving out is when the bizarre and frankly scary things began to occur. It started with phone calls. Oh Lord. And I know sometimes I Obviously, you imagine that there's some distance in phone calls, right? Because you assume that whomever is calling you is far away. But they can still be scary. Yeah. There was one time I came home for the weekend during college, and my mom and my stepdad and my brother had gone somewhere. I can't remember where now. And I was home alone that weekend. It was a Saturday night, 
and I was watching I Know What You Did Last Summer. Why I chose to watch a scary movie alone? when I was home. Yeah, was beyond me. <laughs> like, why would I do that? But I was young and stupid, so I did. <laughs> and the phone rang, so I obviously answered it. And the voice on the other end said, I know you're alone. I would have peed my like pants. That. I would have oh, peed my pants. My gosh, Maggie, I screamed. I'm like flipping out. And then I hear this, bah, ha, 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 and I realize it was my friend Katie. because she knew I was home alone. She had no idea I was watching a scary movie, but like, she just knew I was home alone and, you know, said that and then immediately started laughing. But I don't know what I would have done had there been no friendly joking laughter right after. Uh, I don't like, what's that one scary movie where they call and it's like, what's your favorite scary movie? Oh, Scream? Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah. No. Yeah, um, I, I don't know what I would have done, but whatever it would have been, it would involve have involved grabbing a knife and a baseball bat and calling nine one one. Yes, and calling nine one one. Cindy's calls, unlike mine, were numerous. Mostly, they would either whisper her name, oh, which no. I know makes my skin crawl. They would threaten her, or it would just be complete silence. Yeah. After one of the phone calls, Cindy was so scared that she hung up on the caller and quickly shut the blinds, but then the phone rang again, and the caller let her know that there was no use trying to hide because the caller knew Cindy was in the living room. Okay, what year is this, did you say? This is 1982. Oh, so we don't have, like, cell phones where he's, like, standing right? outside her house. Like, right. Like, looking, Yep. So, whomever this was, when they would call, they seemed to always know just where Cindy was. So, it was like there was no escaping. Ugh, creepy. And it wasn't just phone calls either, Maggie. Sometimes Cindy would hear noises like an intruder trying to get into the house and she would try to call the police only to find that her phone lines. Oh, no. Yeah. No. Yep. Or she would hear a noise and try to turn a porch light on only to find that the light had been smashed. Oh, what's that one that we did where the light bulb was unscrewed like just slightly so it wouldn't turn on? That was, um, yeah, the Lorene Rand case. Yeah, that's like... This is on that level of creepy right now. Mm-hmm. Or she would wake in the morning to find dead cats in her garden strangled with twine. Okay, first of all, walking outside and seeing a dead cat would be enough for me. Walking outside and seeing that it had been murdered, I think, would send me mm-hmm. over the edge. Mm-hmm. And all of this, Maggie, was coupled with the letters oh, that she received. Of course she did. They were- Right. They were left on her doorstep near the strangled cats. They were left at her workplace. And the letters were like like this collage of pictures and cut out letters from magazines to form words and messages. And it would say words like dead and mangled pulp and knife and soon, Cindy. Okay, first off, you have to be dedicated to cut all those letters out of a magazine. Yes. Hmm. And I don't know about you, Maggie, but I would have been, 
uh, terrified doesn't even do it justice. I would have been like, hello, FBI, I need placed in the witness protection program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And obviously Cindy was terrified and it seemed like no matter what she did, Maggie, the harassment didn't stop. Instead, it continued for seven years. Holy crap. Yeah. I couldn't deal with it for a day. I don't think I'd be able to handle it. Seven years. That's enough to put anyone's mental state into such hyperdrive that a breakdown would be inevitable. Oh, yeah. And all the while, Cindy tried to make it stop. She went to the police over a hundred times over the course of the seven years. Oh, my God. She moved multiple times. She changed her name. She painted her car, and she even hired a private investigator. The private investigator found nothing? No. Oh, my God. And instead of the actions stopping because of all of these, you know, steps of prevention she's taking, it seemed at times to escalate, including multiple incidences of physical violence against Cindy herself until finally... On July 8th, 1989, after being taunted and mentally tortured for those seven straight years, Cindy James was found dead. Okay, so my question is, like, do we mean physical violent, like, violence attempts beyond, like, trying to break into her home? Yes. Did we talk about those like already? assaults. By an unknown person? Correct. Okay. But all of that, obviously, it's terrifying. The scariest part, Maggie, is what I mentioned in the introduction. The scariest part is not that the perpetrator of this psychological torment didn't have a face, right? Because it's just some Mm -hmm. unknown stalker. But that the police didn't believe cindy see and like i am such like i want the police to always be like the good guy i'm so i'm like so like i guess just naive like that and that makes me kind of sad that the people Mm -hmm. that you turn to for protection are kind of like okay lady sure yeah instead they think that she could have done all of this to herself why would one do that though Well, that's what we're going to look at in this week's case. (laughs) So we're going to delve into a bunch of the details of what actually happened to Cindy. I'm going to kind of give you a timeline. Okay. Especially focusing on the physical attacks. Okay. We're going to go back through all of the things that that Cindy did to stop the torment. And then I'll present you with the theories to see if you think someone really was stalking Cindy or whether it's possible that she could have been tormenting herself for all of these years. Okay. I'm ready. Okay. Between October 12th and the 19th, 1982, when law enforcement were first contacted about concerns Cindy was having, she told them about several phone calls during which someone threatened her. She called on the 13th to report someone trying to get into her back door. 
She called on the 15th when a rock was thrown through her kitchen window, and again on the 19th when she came home to find that her pillows had been slashed open. I'm sorry, what? Someone mm-hmm. was in her home? Mm-hmm. No. So after so many phone calls in one week, one individual officer, Pat McBride, was especially concerned for Cindy's safety. He actually helped her install a deadbolt on the door, and he began to stop by each day just to check on her. Oh, round of applause for this guy, though, going above and beyond. He then kind of took it a step further, though, that I'll get to in a minute. But he drove by every day to check on Cindy. And things were actually quiet for about 10 days until October 30th when Cindy received her first note of cutout letters. And Maggie, these notes are creepy. So I'm going to show you some of them. Oh, yay. So Maggie, what do you find creepiest about some of these notes? Um, like the words I could maybe like look past, I guess. They're creepy, but like the creepiest thing is like all these pictures this person has included, like this, mm-hmm. these women being strangled. What's the top one on the one that says, I see you? Um, it's like a body bag. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then there's like a man. I'm assuming holding a knife in mm-hmm. one of these, another person being strangled, and it says beheaded. Mm-hmm. Okay. The one thing I think is odd about these letters, once I was like really looking at them, is that one of them says I and one of them says we. And I thought that was a little bizarre. Where's the we? One says I see you and the other says we are coming. Oh, I was wondering what that said. But now, okay, because the one, like, leg of the W is kind of cut off. I was like, mm-hmm. near coming. Like, so hmm. I think that's that's a little odd to me. Yeah. But these notes are creepy. Mm-hmm. So you can see why they kind of freaked her out. Yes. After Cindy received the first one, Officer McBride actually moved in with Cindy. Oh. This is why I said it takes a little further. That's weird. To, like, keep her safe. But it's also reported that around that time, the two began to date. Okay, that makes it a little less weird. But it would be really weird if just like a random police officer moved in with you. Yeah. In early November 1982, McBride reports that he found Dr. Makepeace, remember that's Cindy's Uh ex-husband, in the alley behind Cindy's home. And that Makepeace was armed with a rifle and a handgun. And, I mean, not that those things are common in America, but being armed like that is something even less common in Canada, which is where this week's case is set. And we all know I love Canada. You do. So, this dude was just hanging out in the alley behind her house with a rifle and a handgun? The cop said he saw Cindy's ex-husband, yes, in the alley with a rifle and a handgun. And the officer, McBride, had actually suspected Cindy's ex-husband from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But it was Cindy who reportedly dissuaded him continually, just saying, 
no, no, no. Roy and I are still on good terms, right? It couldn't be him. Hmm. In the month of November, the phone call threats continued. Her phone lines were cut in five places. And a note with the, the picture of the corpse was left on Cindy's car windshield. But when police came to investigate Maggie, they found no clues. And by no clues, I mean no fingerprints, no eyewitnesses, nothing. So could it have been the police officer? Well, that's one theory we'll talk about in the end. Okay. And maybe the stress was beginning to take its toll on her new relationship. Because remember, they just began to date, like, you know, end of October, mm -hmm. right? Or maybe she and McBride just weren't compatible. But on December 1st, Cindy asked McBride to move out of her home. Even though they, and again, I read this in many of the articles, like she did with Roy, continued to date. And I read in one source that McBride did keep a key to her house. Okay, that's weird. I guess to keep checking on her. Are we air quoting checking? Because I kind of think we Yes. Okay, air quote checking. Yes. <laughs> in January 1983 came the first physical attack. Hmm. The first few weeks were of January were filled with more phone calls, though they were too short for police to trace to find out any information other than the fact that they came from Vancouver, which is where Cindy is. She got more cutout letters and pictures, again, of corpses, of knives, uh, or of women with their faces scratched out. Okay, that's really creepy. Mm-hmm. It was on January 27th when things went a step further. Cindy's friend, Agnes Woodcock, stopped by Cindy's home for a visit. And she kind of, she was checking on Cindy as well. She was starting to get the suspicion that maybe Cindy knew more about the individual who was terrorizing her than she let on, but thought that maybe Cindy was too scared to share the details, like afraid that they would then go after somebody else that she cared about. Hmm. On this day, Agnes knocked on the door and Cindy didn't answer. So Agnes is like, oh, well, you know, usually she takes a bath around this time of day. Maybe she's in the bath and can't hear me. Maybe she's busy. So Agnes went around to the back door. She was going to knock on it. But when she got into the backyard, it was there that she saw Cindy. Like you all don't even know, like right now, Allison is telling me this story. And first off, I was in like our basement, which is finished and like really nice. <laughs> But after the intro, I literally said, hey, like, I'm going to have to go upstairs for this one <laughs> and be near Anthony because this is creeping me out. And right, like right now, I'm currently standing up, like lean <laughs> over the computer screen, like into this. Oh, Maggie, then maybe you need to find Anthony because it's going to escalate. Oh, God. So Agnes found Cindy on the ground oh. in the backyard. She had pantyhose tied tightly around her neck, and she had almost a dozen cuts on her arms, legs, and hands. But this is not when she's dead, correct? No. Okay. No. Oh, my God. Okay. Once Cindy was composed enough to speak, she shared with Agnes 
what she could recollect of how she'd gotten there. She said that she had gone out to the garage to get a box and someone had grabbed her from behind. Mm-mm-mm. The man mm-hmm, the man strangled her with stockings until she passed out. And the only thing that she remembered seeing of the man was that he had on white tennis shoes. Okay, literally every man in 1983, but okay. Right, exactly. After this first attack, Cindy decided, okay, a change needs to happen. So she moved. I would be like moving to like Argentina. Like I would be getting up out of Canada. And I feel like this was a mistake. But when she moved, she actually moved back into the home that she had shared with her ex-husband. Remember I said they were still friendly Dr. Makepeace had actually moved out so that she could move back in. But I do feel like that tells you she didn't suspect him of the torture, at least not initially, because why else would she have moved back into his home? She also painted her car and changed her name, hoping to change just enough that the stalking would end. Obviously, it didn't. It didn't. Despite all of those attempts to avoid the dangers, police were beginning to doubt her credibility. Another detective believed Dr. Makepeace could be involved, but that maybe Cindy didn't want to name him as a suspect for some reason. So police gave Cindy two lie detector tests, both of which she failed. That's pretty creative on police like on their behalf though like giving What's her that? like giving her a oh, lie yeah. detector test mhm so she fails these lie detector tests which we've talked about this a bajillion times yeah. we know really proves nothing exactly but according to several accounts it was after the second polygraph that Cindy admitted that she did have an idea of who was attacking her but she wouldn't give a name out because of fear that they would hurt her family. But like, So exactly what Agnes thought. But like they're hurting you. Mm-hmm. But I guess you'd be like, well, I'd rather they hurt me than... Yeah, than hurt like my, my niece or, you know, whoever. But Maggie, I think what's sad is that it was almost as though once they realized they couldn't trust her completely to tell them all the information they knew, that the police decided just to not trust her at all. No, no. See, you got to like, each day is a clean slate. I know. But that spring, Cindy moved again. So she's continually moving. Mm -hmm. By April, the phone calls began again, prompting a fourth move by the end of April. And it seems like each time Cindy tried to get away, trouble and danger found her out again. She had a bit of a break from the terror for nearly four months. Oh, and I can only like, imagine. I can oh, sleep now. I can right. Like... I can't imagine how hopeful she probably was. Like, maybe this last move saved me. Mm-hmm. However, on August 22nd, 1983, the letters she previously only received at her home were now left at her work, the Blenheim House, the one place she used to love to go to help the children. 
each aspect of joy that Cindy used to find was just taken from her one by one. So this woman who was once so full of life now feared being home, feared being at work, feared others, feared everything. And it seems like she had reason to be afraid. Yeah, I'm afraid and I'm just listening to her story. (laughs) I know. On October 15th, 1983, the next note, which said, your next, was accompanied by a cat strangled with a piece of string. So let's just talk about the fact that, like, if you're killing animals, you're, like, going to be a psychopath. You're, like, this, Mm -hmm. this person has three names is what I'm trying to say. Right. Agreed. So things were escalating again when yet another strangled cat was left on cindy's porch in november and her phone lines were cut again mcbride the officer who was still communicating with cindy convinced her to hire a private investigator and left without much other recourse of action She did exactly that, Maggie, and hired Ozzy Caban. A second physical attack happened on January 30th, 1984. This private investigator, Caban, had actually given, I thought this was smart, he had given Cindy a two-way radio because her phone lines had been cut so often. That is smart. Yeah, he wanted to make sure that he could always reach her and she could always reach him. That's really smart. Mm-hmm. But around 6 p.m. on January 30th, Caban heard some odd noises over the two-way radio. So he rushed to Cindy's home, and when she didn't answer the door, he busted it in. And similar to the way Agnes had found her, Caban discovered Cindy on the floor with black stockings tied tightly around her neck. She had been hit in the head, like had a big pump knot on her forehead. Different from the last time, though, is that Cindy had a paring knife struck through a note and through her left hand. She was initially unresponsive, but when she came to, she said she couldn't remember much about the attack, presumably because of the strike to the head. She mentioned, like, thinking that they had stuck a needle in her arm, and she had a needle mark in her arm, Maggie, but when she was tested, there was no substance in her body. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I don't, Are you processing? Yeah, I gotta take a minute, right? <laughs> like, I think first off, like, I feel like, may, would you not have heard more on the radio? Like, if, I mean, I would have thought so. Yeah, but I then like in my head, so I'm trying to say like, okay, is this like stalker, intruder, murder, or is this crazy person doing this to themselves? And those are the two theories, in essence. But like. You, I, I cannot imagine, I don't like, one, I can't imagine sticking a needle in my arm because I don't like needles. So I definitely can't imagine like clonking myself on the head and then like choking myself or stabbing myself through the hand. Yeah. Sticking a knife through your hand. I just, I can't process 
either one of these theories right now. It was at this point that Cindy finally told police that Dr. Makepeace had been abusive during their marriage. Okay, but we think she's a liar, so... Right. So they're like, do we trust this? Do we not? He did become the primary suspect, but he vehemently denied having anything to do with Cindy's torture. Two weeks later, on Valentine's Day, 1984, Dr. Roy Makepeace was questioned for about six hours by law enforcement. Wow. He maintained his innocence, but he offered another potential suspect. He said, could Cindy have maybe worked with a child at the Blenheim house and it made the family mad? Maybe a family with ties to organized crime. Oh, my God. So it was almost like he was like giving details like this were true. But that theory didn't pan out either. Hmm. In the summer of 1984, things amped up again. More phone calls. Phone lines continuously being cut. Windows were broken. I mean, Cindy withdrew even more from her co-workers and she began losing weight. So years of harassment were taking its toll. And Caban, the private investigator, gave Cindy a silent alarm to try to make her feel more safe. So this, she has like the physical characteristics of someone who is just being worn down yeah i I mean i'm sure she's not sleeping sure she's not doing any of that yeah and and i think caban was hoping that the silent alarm would make her feel better Mm -hmm. on june 18th 1984 cindy pulled that silent alarm she found her back door open Inside Cindy's house was a cigarette butt from a brand that wasn't the brand that Cindy smoked. Cindy's dog was tied to the kitchen table. All of this is what Caban saw when he got there. Cindy's dog was tied to the kitchen table, having been beaten and choked with string, the same string that was used on the strangled cats, so obviously a sign. Additionally, there was a sexually explicit birthday note to Cindy in the home. And then a few weeks later, another strangled cat. So, like, I know the DNA might not have been where it needed to be in 1984, but, like, is the technology, like, has that cigarette butt ever been tested for DNA? I don't even know if they collected it. Oh. There's a lot that Cindy's family has been rather perturbed about of tests that could have and should have been done that weren't. Oh, okay. July 3rd, 1984, a third violent attack occurred. It was 8.30 p.m. when Cindy actually let the private investigator Caban know that she was going to walk her dog in a nearby park. So did she get another dog? No, it was the same one. That dog didn't die. Oh, okay. It was just beaten. And it was choked. Okay. Not choked to death. Okay, gotcha. Around midnight, Cindy knocked on a stranger's door. When they answered, Cindy collapsed on the floor, black stockings once again tied tightly around her neck. 
She had once again been struck on the head. She had once again had needle marks in her arm, yet when tests were later performed, no substances were found in her system. Just like the other attacks, she had no memory of what happened and seemed disoriented when she was questioned. Like, I would be nowhere by myself, ever. And that's one problem that a lot of people have. I'm going to bring it up later when we talk about the theories. Okay. There were more phone calls, more letters, more cutting of her phone line. And yet every time, Maggie, when police would do surveillance on her home, like back when they did believe her, no phone calls and nothing suspicious would happen. Because either A, this person is stalking her and they know they're there, or B, it's her. Right. Yeah, either way, it would explain why it would stop. Mm-hmm. So because when they would set up surveillance, it would the activity would stop, police began to think, like you just said, either this suspect is super savvy or lucky and would just avoid harassing Cindy knowing that the police are there, or there was never a suspect to begin with. Cindy underwent hypnosis at private investigator Caban's recommendation and mentioned, according to one source, that she had once witnessed a double murder. Oh, my God. That refused to give the details. Now, if this is true, that event could be why someone would torment Cindy to keep her quiet. Right. But I question the validity of that claim in the source because I feel like Whoever she told this to under hypnosis would have broken confidentiality by telling what she said. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've discussed on here before with um, the Erica Baker case that confidentiality extends beyond your client's death. Right. So I, I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that would be something that a therapist would then tell after the hypnosis sessions a few months again went by of peace until it all started again in december 1984 cindy's health continued to decline and all of the events of the past two years were beginning to wear on her mentally as well and who could doubt it yeah i mean her daily life was terrifying. It looked as though there was no escape. And she's just thinking, like, when are they going to actually succeed at killing me? Yeah. In June 1985, Cindy tried to take that opportunity from them and attempted suicide by overdosing on pills. Like, I feel like for her at this point, it's like, when is this going to end? Like, I need this to end somehow. Yep. And I'm not yep. going to give them the justification to end it for me. Mm-hmm. But she lived. And the harassment continued. But now is thing- when things began to occur that made police really question whether Cindy's mental state had been compromised all along. And whether they could trust anything Cindy said. Especially... Since they too had been looking into each instance for which Cindy had called the police 
and yet they found nothing in years. In July, she called police again concerning phone calls that she'd been receiving. But according to several sources, yet something that her family does not believe, but several sources said that one of the calls had been recorded by the phone company Hmm. and the call was traced to Cindy's own number. So it looked as though she were calling herself. Oh, okay. Okay, wait. So supposedly the phone company traced a phone call for Cindy mm-hmm. and the phone call to her house phone came from her house phone. Mm-hmm. Can you even do that? I don't know if like if you call a number and then like hang up really quick, would it ring and then there'd just be nothing on the other end? It's, that's weird to me. Yeah. From July 27th through August 21st, 1985, Cindy received a container full of rotten meat. And three separate times, she called the police over arson attempts at her home. Every time, police came away more and more convinced that Cindy was setting the fires herself, despite there being an open basement window. Because for them, number one, the windows didn't appear to be forced open. And number two, because dust and cobwebs around the window were undisturbed. So it's like they had been like open from the inside? Right. And so they're thinking, well, if somebody had broken in to start these fires... Then the window, like around the window, would have been disturbed. Yeah. And it wasn't. Yet Cindy's family wonders if that were true and she were terrorizing herself, why would she have then moved yet again in December 1985? Like, obviously, there's no escaping yourself. And you know this. How much hassle is moving? I mean, like still unpacking but like the boxes that have yet to be unpacked i think will never be unpacked at this point yeah and she did it like this is like the fifth or sixth time she's moved so for me if we're saying that cindy is doing this to herself i think that she's in such a bad mental state like i think that if she's doing it to herself it is almost like it's like a game for her like she's Like, I don't want to sound mean, but, like, if we're saying that, like, she's that crazy. Like, I have to move to keep up this facade that someone is doing this to me. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, only 10 days after that move, in December 1985, there was a fourth incident of physical violence. Cindy left for her lunch break from work and didn't return. She was found on a university campus nearby with black stockings again tied tightly around her throat, needle marks in her arms, yet no substances in her system, and no memory of what happened to her. This time, she was found without her shoes or a coat on either, and this was mid-December. She was suffering from hypothermia. So... 
Like, is it the same black stockings every time? Like, this person's buying these babies in bulk at, like, Sam's Club? Well, yeah. I mean, it seems so. I didn't read anything about, like, police investigating what brand or where they could have been purchased. or And that's why I'm saying I get where the family's coming from, that I feel like law enforcement mm -hmm. missed a lot of opportunities. Yeah, yeah. And in this case... There was no evidence, no fingerprints, no witnesses, and all of this, no evidence and no fingerprint, despite her being found with, I said no shoes. I guess I should rephrase. She had a single man's boot on one foot and a man's glove on one hand. But when police process it, there's no fingerprints, anything. So again, it's Cindy who became the primary suspect for police and especially became the primary suspect after police consulted a psychiatrist who argued that it was quite plausible that Cindy could have been doing this to herself all along. After all, what perpetrator would have the patience to harass someone for years and then only come close to killing them to put needles in Cindy's arm but not inject her with anything but to play devil's advocate Cindy's family had their own questions why and how would Cindy have done all of this to herself right why would she have asked people to move in with her to help the, her make it stop why would she have been suffering so visibly, like not eating, not hanging out with friends? Why would she have hired a private investigator? And that private investigator, Maggie, and Cindy's family and close friends soon became the only ones who believed that there was actually someone else tormenting her. So here's my issue, and we may talk about this later on. Mm -hmm. So one... Like, I feel like your private investigator is going to always side with you because you're paying him. You're paying them? Yeah. Oh, so, there's that. <laughs> Secondly, like, did her family live in this town or were they like, like, were, were they from Vancouver or were they from somewhere else? That I do not know. Because like my daddy would already have moved into my house with me. Right. But I feel like, I mean, I get what you're saying about the private investigator, but I feel like after her passing, maybe he would have expressed doubt. True. But he hasn't. Oh, that changes things. I know. And just because she wasn't believed didn't mean that the torment ended. In fact, she was so scared at this point that she asked her friend Agnes, the one who found her with that first physical attack, mm -hmm. and Agnes's husband, Tom, if they would stay with her after she had gotten a particularly scary call earlier that day. When they were getting ready for bed, they heard a noise. Tom went down in the basement to check it out, and he found the whole basement in flames. When he ran back up, Agnes grabbed the phone to call for help, only to find that the phone lines had again been cut. Now, the three of them made it out without injury, 
But when Tom, remember, he can't call for the fire department because the phone lines have been cut. So he starts to run towards the neighbor's house because he's going to have to ask to borrow the phone to call the fire department. And he reported that he saw a man standing on the, on the sidewalk. But when Tom asked that man if he could go call the fire department, the man turned and ran away. So, like, could that have been Cindy Stalker, like, watching the scene unfold? Was it possible that, like, to play what the police are thinking, is it possible Cindy could have done that with her friends there? So, some reports I read said that Cindy was visible to them, like, when they heard the noise, when Tom went downstairs does she and not, found it ablaze. And does she not have, like, the silent alarm anymore? To she does. And police kind of question in the same way you just did. With the basement windows closed this time and still dusty and undisturbed, they decided that the fire had been most likely set from within by Cindy herself. Cindy actually began accusing her ex-husband, Dr. Makepeace, of being involved. But at the time of this fire, Dr. Makepeace was actually out of the country. Hmm. At the suggestion of Cindy's therapist, Cindy was sent to St. Paul's Hospital so she could have a proper evaluation because her therapist was afraid that Cindy might be a danger to herself. I mean, she had previously attempted suicide. She was suffering from severe depression and anxiety. Like, I feel like and I would even, have been like, can you voluntarily lock me in a police cell? Like in a oh, jail yeah, cell? Oh, yeah, keep me safe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And her family felt that this was a good idea for her to be mm -hmm. in the St. Paul's Hospital. Not that they thought, they didn't think that she was having like any mental break other than just like the strain and stress yeah, of she what could, she was having to endure. Like she could rest there though. Exactly. Her anxiety and depression were getting worse. And, you know, especially with that idea that no one is believing her and they were worried that she might attempt suicide again. Mm -hmm. While in the hospital, many of the doctors further fed into police doubt of Cindy's credibility when several of the psychologists argued that the attacks and fires could have been the result of Cindy's own psychotic behavior and believed that it was possible that she could later stage her own death to make it look like someone else were to blame. Wow. But I think that's like a weird conjecture to make, right? Like, oh, she could have been doing this to herself. You know what? She'll probably, you know, commit suicide and make it look like somebody else's to blame. Like, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, like, if you're saying, though, that she is in a state where she's making it look like someone is attacking her, she's, like, even going as far to move to play along with this, like, scenario that she's created, then I can kind of see why they would say, like, she will probably commit suicide and make it look like someone killed her. Because I feel like that yeah. goes along with, like, what's happening in her mind if we're going this avenue. Yeah. I guess my struggle is, like, I feel like it's unfair to assume that just because there isn't like 100% proof, clear evidence that there is a stalker, that 
well, it's obviously Cindy doing it to herself. Oh, yeah. Like, I think, you know, it's kind of like in the case last week, like, we're just going to assume that he ran away because we don't know where he is. Like, right. That's not necessarily true. And if, if they believe that Cindy is likely to commit suicide in a way that someone else takes the blame, here's my big question. Why had she previously attempted suicide by trying to overdose? Like, by attempting in a way that didn't make it look like someone else were to blame. That's true. Why didn't she just go straight for the scenario they presented? Right. Yeah, if she if she had tied the stockings around her own neck in each of those other attacks, why would she have attempted suicide by doing something so different? Yeah, I feel like it would have to be a super elaborate plan for her to be like, okay, I'm going to make it look like I tried to commit suicide by taking these pills, but like, I know it's not going to work. And this just is all going to play into like this big thing that I'm like doing right now. Like that's, I feel that's like a lot. Too many hypotheticals. Yeah. When Cindy was released in July, 1986, she moved yet again and changed her last name again to James and nothing happened. No notes, no calls. And this is July, 1986. Nothing until late August 1987. So she got a good year in there. Yep. At least some break. But in August 1987, again, Cindy began calling police over broken windows, a hole cut in a window, a window pried open, her basement door broken. On October 26th, 1988, six years after the first calls to police, Cindy was attacked a fifth time. Around midnight, Cindy managed to again trigger a silent alarm to Caban, who found Cindy in her garage with black stockings tied tightly around her neck, just like all of the other physical attacks. Again, she claimed someone had grabbed her from behind. This time, a bit different from the others, She had been partially undressed. Hmm. It's reported that Caban found her partially nude. And, unlike previous times, her arms and feet were tied with a second pair of stockings. More notes came. More attempted break-ins until the final attack. The one that claimed her life. So, I guess another question that I have. So many questions. Um... I feel like in a lot of the cases we've done, like most people have like a heightened sensitivity and memory when they're involved in something like this. Mm -hmm. Is it normal? And like, did we ever figure out why she isn't remembering? Like, I mean, I know some of the cases she was hit in the head, but not all of them. Right. Right. I have no, no, I, I don't know the answer to that. Hmm. On May 26th, 1989, Cindy was on the first day of a five-day vacation from work. She ran errands that day. She bought groceries. She bought a birthday gift for a friend's son. And we know because when her abandoned car was discovered, those items were still in the back seat. Items from her purse were found under the car as if there'd been a struggle and blood was found on the driver's side front door. But Cindy was nowhere. And for 12 more days, 
Cindy didn't show up. On June 8th, 1989, a road maintenance worker noticed a bright white something near an abandoned house on Blundell Road. It was Cindy's shirt that had caught his attention. Her body was lying lifeless, a mile and a half away from where her car had been found. She was fully clothed, except for having no shoes on. Which had happened before. Right. She had black stockings around her neck, choking her. Her hands and her feet were also tied behind her back. She had a needle mark in her arm. But this time, there was something in her system. A lethal dose of morphine. So I feel like if she had been doing this to herself, would we not be able to trace back how she got morphine? I would think so. That's one of the things I wanted to bring up here with our theories. I would think so. Just as her torment in life came from an unknown source, so too with her death. As the RCMP did not rule it murder, nor did they rule it a suicide, but stated that Cindy James's death was a result of a, quote, unknown event, end quote. Hmm. So, Maggie, I'm going to tell you the three leading theories and see what you think. Theory one. Pat McBride, the police officer, who so quickly moved in with Cindy to, air quote, protect her. Because the stalking went on for so long, it's hard to believe that it could have been perpetuated by a stranger. I feel like the length of time makes it too personal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those who think this theory, right, that it could be the officer, point out how quickly he came to the aid Of the newly single damsel in distress. So many air quotes in this. I know. And it's more personal than professional to have stopped by her home every day to check on her. It's definitely crossing the line into a personal relationship when he moves in and then they begin dating. Yeah, and all very quickly. Yeah. Did he want her to feel like he was her protector? Was he angry when their relationship only lasted barely over a month? Did the fact that he was a police officer explain why the police never found any evidence or why the phone calls never happened when the police had set up surveillance? But weren't they happening before he really knew her? Only two weeks. Okay, true. But if it were him, then I feel like someone else would know Because there would have had to have been some evidence of McBride having been in her home. Mm -hmm. And I know that that one report noted that he still had a key when he moved out. But Cindy had moved several times. And I doubt that she would have given him a key each time. Yeah, true. And he's the one who convinced Cindy to hire a private investigator. Which would have been odd for him to do if he's the perpetrator. Besides, Pat McBride had his eye on someone else. Theory two, Dr. Makepeace. Okay. Many believe, including McBride, that as a psychiatrist, he would have known very well what to do to drive someone insane. He would be aware each time of where Cindy was moving. He would be aware of where she worked 
of her habits. I mean, they were married for 16 years. That's true. He might also be aware of the times when the police were involved, tapping the lines and the like, if, you know, he and Cindy continued to maintain that friendship. He was, according to Officer McBride, found in the alley behind Cindy's home with guns. But he could have been protecting her. He could have been trying to protect her. could have been. And he was, according to Cindy, abusive during their marriage. He was additionally the only person Cindy eventually named as a potential suspect. So many wonder if his harassment of Cindy could be like bottled up anger. Well, if he was abusive in their relationship, it kind of points to once they... Like, he could have taken it the next step once they separated. Right. But to play devil's advocate, he actually is the one who urged Cindy to go to the police in the first place. He was seen with guns, but guns were never used on Cindy, only knives. He was out of the country when the fire was set that Cindy blamed him for. And, Maggie, he himself had received a threatening message on his answering machine. And I'm going to play it for you now, but I'm going to warn you, it's creepy. Well, I'm not going to lie. I already texted Anthony like five minutes ago and I put myself on mute while we were recording and made him come check the closet in our bedroom to make sure there was nobody in there. Well, you're going to want him right beside you for this because... I'm not going to lie. And the first time I listened to it, it was during the day and I was at school, students getting ready to walk into my room and it still gave me goosebumps. Perfect. Yeah. So be prepared. This is the recording that Dr. Makepeace turned into police, a recording left on his answering machine. And I'll go ahead and tell you what it's saying. Because then you'll be able to hear it more clearly. But the police determined it is saying Cindy dead meat soon. Okay, I can't do that multiple times. I'm not going to lie. I wasn't even going to subject you to it twice. Like immediately my hands started sweating. My heart started pounding. Like I got butterflies in my stomach. Woo. I know. I'm going to have to watch some Big Bang Theory after this. So I can like (laughs) come down enough to go to sleep. I know. Now you know why. When I was at school, I was like... (gasps) Like, I got immediate chills. hmm But I'm going to agree. It's a woman's voice. Yes. It sounds like a woman's voice. And Sleuth Hounds, if you are brave enough to rewind and listen to it again, especially on the word meat, I feel like you can tell that it's a woman's mm-hmm. voice. Yeah. And that is why... Many wonder about theory three, that it was Cindy all along. This theory presumes that because there were never fingerprints other than Cindy's, never proof of an intruder getting in to start a fire, never calls that could be traced anywhere because Cindy never saw a face, 
that all of those things were true because the only person responsible was her. They question whether Cindy might have had a psychotic break. Supporters of this theory point out details like, if Cindy were truly scared of someone, why would she walk her dog at night? Yeah. And and you brought that up, Maggie. And I don't know if that's enough to convince me, though. Because, I mean, if she did shift work, maybe she had to walk her dog at night. True. And maybe she wanted to keep her dog because she felt like it was at least some form of protection. Mm -hmm. They argue that she must have been doing it to herself because who else would have had the patience to stalk her for seven years? Yeah, and you said that earlier, too. Like, it's really personal. Is it personal enough that it's her personally? Right. But here's where I question. Would she really have tortured her own dog? Why try to commit suicide by other means, as I mentioned earlier? Could she have really placed herself in all of those scenarios? Like, wouldn't they have found her DNA on a cat? But, like, if you're saying in the same, in my mind, if we're saying in the same paragraph, would she really torture her dog? And then saying, wouldn't her DNA be on a dead cat? If we're saying she could kill a cat, I think she could torture her dog. True, but I'm wondering if they even did any DNA evidence on the twine. I'm going to go with no, because I feel like not a lot of DNA was done in this case. Right, that's true. But then, like, wouldn't they have found twine in her home? True. Wouldn't they have found something in her home that started the fire? And what about the man on the street who ran away? Could she have really stabbed a knife through her hand just for a ruse? Could she have really subjected herself to hypothermia? Have choked her own self with pantyhose and all of this in addition to well the last attack the one that led to her death tying her hands and feet behind her all after administering a lethal dose of morphine apparently yes to all of those questions according to the police of course first and this is a bit creepy but i had to tell you a similar case had happened before like in this area no in the u.s a woman by the name of Ruth Finley swore that for a little more than three years, from 1978 to 1981, so just before Cindy experiences her first stalker, some much, this Ruth Finley swore that someone was stalking, abducting, and assaulting her. And just like Cindy, she received threatening calls and letters, including this one. Quote, here's to you, my tender valentine. Red with blood and tied with twine. Nothing too much for a valentine. Gone from here on a whim of mine. End quote. Uh. Because of the letters, the rhyming, her stalker was nicknamed the poet. And this stalker set the Christmas wreath ablaze on Ruth Finley's front door. Uh. Left a knife wrapped in newspaper and twice Ruth was the victim of a physical attack where she was disoriented and once left with a knife wound that bruised her kidney. Oh my God. Yeah. And when police would set up surveillance on the house, nothing would happen. When they installed a camera in the backyard, items were left in the front yard instead. And all of it with the poet's signature item a piece of red bandana. 
But it turns out, Maggie, that the poet was Ruth Finley herself. Hmm. The red bandana was a trigger for her dissociative identity disorder. When she was young, she was like three and a half. She had been abused by a neighbor who would stuff a red bandana in her mouth to keep her quiet. And so this, anytime she would see a red bandana, it would trigger that dissociative identity disorder. And she then continued to perpetuate violence on herself via her other personality as the poet. And Canadian police wondered if the same thing were happening in this instance with Cindy, like maybe some traumatic event that was linked in some way, maybe to black stockings. But in Ruth's case, through treatment, she was able to admit her own complicity and to heal. So wouldn't they have been able to diagnose Cindy with dissociative identity disorder when she was in the mental hospital? But they didn't. And as for her injuries, particularly those that led to her death, forensics showed that she could have tied herself up. In fact, an expert brought in by the RCMP said that if she had ingested morphine, like instead of Mm -hmm. taking it through a syringe, then she could have had up to half an hour before passing. And this expert who they brought in was able to demonstrate the ability of tying the knots that were used on her hands and feet and throat. And he did it all on himself in under three minutes. Okay. So is it perhaps then that all of these other like, quote unquote, like attempted attacks were like practices to see if she could get it in the correct amount of time? Maybe. But then, like, you'd think it would be, I don't know, she wouldn't be in her home or in her backyard or, Mm -hmm. I don't know. But here are my questions with this theory before I get your thoughts. If she did this to herself to fake an attack, why did she walk so far from her car? If she had walked shoeless from her car, how were her feet clean? If she had taken her shoes off there, where were they? If she had stuck a needle in her arm, where was the syringe? How did no one see her walking? Plus, and here's the big one, her body wasn't found for two weeks. If someone noticed her body by her white shirt, You're telling me for two weeks no one else saw it? Not the homeless man who lived in a van right next to the abandoned house where she was found? Not the teenagers who had twice in that time span used the abandoned house to party? Okay, Maggie. There's a lot to think about. What are your thoughts? So, like, if I'm being brutally honest... Like, I want to say she was doing it to herself because that makes me be able to fall asleep better at night than thinking that someone out there in the world Mm -hmm. did this to her. But, like, all the things you brought up at the end are very good points. Like, why were her feet clean? How did her body go unnoticed? Mm -hmm. Like, did Mm -hmm. they say how long, like, could they tell she had been dead those two weeks when they found her there? 
also only, and that was a problem with this case. Like there were so many inconsistencies. Only one source mentioned that the decomposition was not 12 full days worth of decomposition. Mm, but still, but I, somebody right. would have seen it. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This one like truly baffles me. All I know is I'm going to have nightmares. So sleuth hounds, let us know what you think. The police reportedly spent one and a half million dollars investigating Cindy's case between forensic tests, surveillances, fingerprinting, manpower, looking for blood, hair, anything, and coming up empty handed time and time again but just because there's no physical evidence of a stalker that law enforcement could use to prosecute someone doesn't mean that there wasn't one at all to believe so is a logical fallacy appeal to ignorance the idea that just because we can't prove something to be true must mean that its opposite is true Looked at closely, we can all acknowledge the flaw in that thinking. We'll all willingly admit that just because we can't prove that fish have emotions doesn't mean that they don't. Just because we haven't yet found another planet in the universe similar enough to Earth that it's inhabitable doesn't mean that there isn't one. And just because law enforcement didn't find any DNA evidence to prove who was stalking Cindy James doesn't prove that no one was. We must consider all possibilities. Yet Otto Hack, Cindy's father, once told reporters, quote, the police did not investigate the possibility of homicide, of somebody murdering her, but zeroed in on trying to prove that she committed suicide, end quote. Much more could have been done had they only continued to believe her. They could have looked into recent purchases of twine, of black stockings, or access to morphine. Regardless, the torture Cindy James faced had to have been excruciating. Despite not being able to put a face and a name with the perpetrator, the physical and mental toll on her body and her psyche was very real. If seeing is believing, then not seeing and not being believed might have been, besides her death, the worst punishment of all. Again, please like and join us on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and to see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so that more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. week.